Let's turn in our Bibles now to Matthew chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses 5 through 13 in Matthew 6. I want to bring another practical message on Christian living this morning. Last week we spoke about evangelism, telling others the good news of salvation. This morning I'd like us to consider the matter of prayer. So Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 13, has often been referred to as the Lord's Prayer, but the Lord could never pray this prayer. Uh, he didn't have any need to pray for forgiveness because he never sinned. So I think it may be more accurate to give us a title this morning, The Lord's Pattern for Prayer. That's what we'll call it, Lord's Pattern for Prayer. It's the same lesson on prayer that's found in Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. And Luke, in his narrative, gives us insight into how this topic came up. Luke 11, 1, it says, And it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. John the Baptist, uh, apparently taking time to train his followers in this matter of prayer. And now a disciple of Jesus asks him a similar question for a lesson in prayer. Notice that the request in Luke 11, 1, I know you're not there, but the verse that I read, it came after Jesus had been praying. The disciple didn't interrupt the prayer. It says, when he ceased. And so this disciple either had been watching the Lord pray, if it was a silent prayer, or maybe even overhearing the prayer audibly, but his immediate request, his immediate response from that was, Lord, teach us to pray. Can you imagine what it would have been like to watch the Savior pray? And as you do that, you say, I want to be able to pray like that. I'm glad this disciple worded his desire. And so let's take notes here in Matthew to see how we should pray as well. Jesus first gives a pattern to avoid, verses 5 through 8. It's not to be as the hypocrites. Verse 5, and when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. They're called hypocrites here. The word was used in Greek for an actor who wore a mask. And so the word means to act or to pretend to be someone or something that you're not. In the religious realm, there are two kinds of hypocrites. There are those who are unsaved who try to appear like they are Christians. And then there are Christians who are sinful, but they want to appear to be godly. Augustine said, the love of honor is the deadly bane of true piety. Other vices bring forth evil works, but this brings forth good works in an evil way. And so, so he says, don't pray like the hypocrites. Where are they found? He says, they love to pray standing in the synagogues. I'm sure they're thinking, boy, why should I pray here at home when I can go down to the synagogue and everybody can see me praying? I want others to know how spiritual that I am. We, we censure them for that, but often we fall into the same patterns. And do you pray? Because you know other people are listening. D.L. Moody said, a man who prays much in private will make short prayers in public. <laughs> They're not only standing in the synagogue, these hypocrites are also standing in the corners of the streets. Now, Jesus had been, just been talking about those same hypocrites in verse 2. 
And here they were giving alms, so that others would see their generosity, their kindness. Verse 2, Wherefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound the trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do, in synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men, verily I say, do they have their reward. Same, same conclusion, they have their reward already. The alms here were any acts of mercy or piety shown to others. It eventually came to mean uh, acts of, of giving charitable things like food or clothing or money to the poor. And the almsgivers wanted others to notice that they were generous either in the synagogue or in the street. Now in verse 5, Jesus mentions the synagogue again. That's where most people like to go to put on a pretense of spirituality. Secondly, though, he uses a different Greek word for streets than he did in verse 2. And here it indicates a wider, a broader street, one that was more trafficked. More people, more people traveling, traveling at it than, than the, the ones, ones that the almsgiver stood on. And also, he, he, he includes this word, the corner of the streets. I mean, there's an intersection. So he's catching people, this hypocrite, two, two different, four different ways. Okay, and they're watching him pray. He wants to be seen. And why do they go to the synagogue in the street corners? It's to be seen of men. And when you start living your life to be seen by others, if that's your motivation, You'll never, never be content. content. You'll always want to put on a bigger show than you did last time. That's what happens when you're living your life to please others. You'll never feel like you're doing enough to get the attention of others, to earn their praise. Hypocrisy is an addiction that's never satisfied. What was the result of their pretending prayers? The end of verse 5, Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. How tragic that is. They were seen of men. That's what they were praying for, and that was their reward. What an empty return. Instead of having an audience with God, who alone has the power, the authority to answer the prayer, they're praying in front of people. We need to make sure that we're talking to God when we pray, rather than speaking to be heard by others, trying to impress people around us. Prayer's goal is to be heard by God, not to be seen by men. In contrast to the hypocrites, Jesus says in verse 6 to pray in secret. It's interesting to look at the third personal pronouns in the plural in verse 5. They, they, they do this. And now he switches in verse 6 to the second person singular. But thou... When thou prayest, enter into thy closet. And when thou shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret. And thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Notice the place. It's a closet. This room was a small interior room of the Oriental house. Usually it was used as a storeroom or a pantry. Later the word came to mean any, any small room. There was privacy there. He said, when thou shut thy door, the word indicates not only that the door is closed, but it's latched, it's locked. And when we pray, we need to lock some things out. Those things that disturb us, phone calls, noise, interruptions, things that could distract us from the outside, but it's also good to lock those things out that distract us from the inside as well. You may have left your phone outside the closet and get into that place of prayer with the Lord, and all of a sudden your mind goes through, I wonder who did call. 
and you, you start, start thinking, thinking of your, your schedule, schedule and the list, list of things, things that, that you have to accomplish for that day. Lock, Lock those things outside the door as well. And, and focus on, on praying. You have, you have an audience, audience with God. God. You're, You're in, in his, his presence. presence. And then, and then it, it says, says pray, pray to thy Father which is in secret. God is a spirit, John 4, 24 tells us. He's invisible, but he's omnipresent. He's dwelling everywhere at the same time. So he's in the synagogue, but he's also in that secret place of prayer. But here, you're not praying to be heard by anyone else. You're just opening your heart to him. He's the one who hears. He's the one who answers. And when the answer comes, he's the one to be praised because nobody else knew about this. There's another, another warning, warning about prayer in verse 7, seven but when thou prayest, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. The people involved in this type of praying are called heathen, ethnikos, it's Gentiles, anyone who's, who's not Jewish, uh, those who did not know the God of Israel. So, again, those other people who, who are outside of God's people, Pray. And, and the, the practice, practice is vain repetitions, repetitions much speaking. There's some who make the same mistake in our world of attempting to get God's ear by praying long prayers or repeating their prayers. Some Muhammadans spin and repeat the name of their God, Allah, until they get so dizzy that they fall down. That's their prayer. Um, Buddhists pray mantras, which consists of syllables of sound, some of them. Or a group of words. They also observe a devotion called bhakti, which includes chanting or offering ritual prayers. In Tibet, mantras are written on a cylinder or a prayer wheel, and that cylinder is on a stick or on a frame called a life tree. And they believe that when they spin that wheel or cylinder, it has the same meritorious effect as in praying out loud that mantra. Some of the larger wheels have millions of mantras printed on them. And so, with the flick of the wrist, millions of prayers are offered. How different that is from Epaphras, who we talked about in Colossians 4, who labored earnestly and fervently in prayer. Catholics light candles, pray rosaries, repeat the Paternoster, the Latin for our Father. Which, which was the very prayer that Jesus is using here to show the, the contrast of, of genuine prayer with vain repetition. What's the presumption? That they are heard because of the repetition of many words. Now, repetition in prayer is not wrong. Don't listen to someone say, hey, you said the same thing twice. Remember when Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew says in Matthew 26, 44, he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. The warning is against vain repetitions. Vain means empty. Empty of meaning. Empty of thought. Augustine made a distinction between much speaking in prayer and much praying. Spurgeon says Christians' prayers are to be measured by weight and not by length. The Lord's pattern for prayer here is 66 words long in our English. It takes about 22 seconds to pray, but it's filled with meaning. 
is filled with thought and content. The problem with the kind of reasoning that's going on here is God doesn't pay more attention to your words when you repeat your prayers. In fact, God already knows your prayer requests before you even pray them. And he says that in verse 8. Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. And I can hear people thinking, well, if he knows what I need before I ask, why pray? Well, he sees, remember he's eternal. And he's omniscient. And, and at, at the, the same, same time, simultaneously, simultaneously he, is, he sees your prayer, he, he sees the need for your prayer, and then he sees your prayer, and then he knows his answer. And it's all the same to him. So we don't. From our perspective, from our vantage point, we can say prayer changes things. And God tells us in his word to pray, and he gives us instructions like we're reading today. And so, and so we need to pray. Prayer does change things. But from God's vantage point, he knew that he would answer before we prayed. So that's the pattern that Jesus warns about to avoid. Now we'll look at the pattern to follow in verses 9 through 13. This prayer can be divided into four sections, four elements. Adoration, submission, supplication, and benediction. Most, Most of us, when we think of prayer, we just think of the supplication part. But notice adoration. After this manner, verse 9, therefore pray ye, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Adoration here comes before the request, before the asking. We're never to approach the throne of God in prayer thoughtlessly and carelessly. We should begin by considering the one to whom we are praying, the greatness of God. The access that we have to his throne room by faith in Jesus Christ. The intercessor who makes intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. We think of him. And so our Father, the opening words remind us that we who are saved have a close relationship with God. We can approach him because we've been adopted into his family by the grace of God. We, we have, have a hearing because he is our father. We have a relationship. But then, then he says, which are in heaven. And so while we have that closeness with who God is in a relationship of salvation, we also recognize that he's far above us. Heaven is distant. It's not a place where we can approach God through our own efforts and through our own merit. Our father, which are in heaven. And then, and then hallowed, hallowed be thy name. His name is to be regarded as holy. When the scribes would copy the scriptures, they would often speak or sing aloud those words as they wrote them. They washed their hands before each writing session, not just to cleanse their hands, but as an indication that they wanted clean lives, clean hearts and minds to perform this act of, of copying the words of scripture. They would pray before they would do any writing. When they came to writing the name of the Lord, they would wash again in the mikvah, a pool of natural running water. They would clean or change the pen that they were writing with. And they would leave out the vowel points of the Lord's name so that they would never take his name in vain. God's name is to be hallowed, to regard his name as holy. And his name represents his character, his person. All that has been revealed about him is found 
in his name. And so when we pray, we are to approach God with the reverence for who he is. Hallowed, sanctified, holy, set apart be thy name. Martin Lloyd-Jones tells us how we can regard his name as holy. He writes, We can do so by words and by our lives, by being reflectors of the greatness and the glory of God and his glorious attributes. That is the meaning of this petition. It means a burning desire that the whole world may bow before God in adoration, in reverence, in praise, in worship, in honor, and thanksgiving. Is that our supreme desire? Is that the thing that is always uppermost in our minds whenever we pray to God? So adoration. Second element of our prayer should be submission. Verse 10, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. We look forward to the day when God rules in righteousness. We've seen kingdoms of this world rise and fall and all fail. But when he rules in righteousness, that will be a glorious kingdom. That will be the millennium, the eternal kingdom. But when we pray for his kingdom to come, we're recognizing that he has the right to be our king and the king of our lives, of our hearts right now. And so we bow in submission to him as king, to his rule. Thy kingdom come. And then thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. His will, all of his purposes, all of his designs, all of his desires to be accomplished here just like they are in heaven. The angels are attentive to what God wants. Immediately they're doing his bidding, his will. And when we pray for his will to be done, we're asking for others to be obedient to his will, that they bow in humble submission and be saved and then follow the Lord. And we're telling him that we're willing to make him our king, that we would obey him. We echo the joyful response of David in Psalm 40, verse 8, I delight to do thy will, O my God. Thy law is within my heart. So it's when adoration is given and submission is worded that we can finally come to our supplication, our requests, verses 11 through first half of verse 13. And there are basically just three requests that are worded in these uh, two and a half verses. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The request for provision first. Give us this day our daily bread. In this petition, there is a real recognition that, that God is the one who provides for what we need. We think that, well, I got that job, and I work for it, and I get the money, and I go to the grocery store, and I buy the, the groceries, and, and so I'm responsible for what goes on the table, or I grew it in my own garden. But it's God who gives us the strength of the work. And it's, and it's God, God who sent, sent the rain to bring forth the fruit of the crops. And so, so we need to recognize that he's the provider. And so we pray for, to him. This bread is called daily bread. The word daily there is an Aramaic word. And it means here, it's used here in Luke. Uh, and in Luke. And it means necessary or needful. Give us this day our needful food. Our needful provisions. And while we may try to lay up things in store, especially when we think of retirement, and we concern ourselves about tomorrow's needs, God is the one who gives us every day exactly what we need. 
He is our provider. And so God's answer to this petition is that we would come to a place of perfect contentment in what he provides. A plumber writes, contentment is reached by moderating wants, not by multiplying possessions. Isn't it great to know that we have a Father who meets our needs? are necessary things on a daily basis. So we ask him, first of all, this request to provide for our daily needs. It's a great prayer request. And then there's a plea for forgiveness. Provision, forgiveness. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, a debt, we know, is something that we owe someone else. The word here speaks of a moral or a spiritual debt. Luke uses another word here, the hamartia, missing the mark, which is all the way through Scripture, a sin. And so this is not a financial debt that we're asking forgiveness. We are to pray to God and ask him to forgive our sins as we forgive others who have sinned against us. I said, wait a minute, I, I'm a Christian. And as I understand it correctly, Jesus paid the full debt of my sin. And he did. But, but we, we still, still sin. <laughs> and so 1 John 1, 9 is written to believers. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Sin does not affect our relationship. That is, daily sin, after you're a Christian, does not affect our relationship with God. We are his children. But it does affect our fellowship. And as the disciples had their feet washed by the Lord, Peter said, wash my hands, hands and my head, everything. And he said, no, you've already been washed. You just need your feet cleansed. So the believer, as he walks through life, has his feet impure. And we do things and we think things and we say things that at the end of the day, when, as soon as the Holy Spirit convicts us, we need to make that right. And so that's what he's saying in this verse. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, the greater the saint, the greater is the sense of sin and the, and the awareness of sin within. That means if you've been walking with the Lord for a longer time, you'll be more aware of those sins on a daily basis in your life that need to be confessed, that need to be taken care of. And so we pray, forgive us our debts, our sins. And then he says, as we forgive others. He doesn't say, because we forgive others. His mercy, his forgiveness is not based on how we respond to other people. We don't merit God's forgiveness because we're forgiving to other people. But an unforgiving spirit is out of character with the true believer. Bible Knowledge Commentary says, One cannot walk in close fellowship with God if he refuses to forgive others. And so, what a great request that we should pattern our prayers after. Lord, forgive us. Where I've sinned, forgive me. Restore that fellowship that I once had with you before sin got in the way. So we ask his cleansing from daily sins. And third, a prayer of protection. Lead us on the right path. He says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Well, the word for temptation can mean a trial or a temptation to do evil in the scriptures. The context here shows he goes on to ask for deliverance from evil, so this must be a temptation to sin, not a trial. 
question naturally arises, does God lead us into temptation? James answers that question for us. James 1, 13 and 14, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God or by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Robertson words this meaning here in, in the pattern for prayer does not allow us to be led into temptation, or do not allow us to be led into temptation. Paul gives that wonderful promise that God provides a way of escape in 1 Corinthians 10.13. There is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above the irritable, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. What's the evil that we ask deliverance from? Here, there's a definite article before evil. And so, and so we can read it, the evil one, or Satan. We pray that we'll not be put into a situation where we are liable to be tempted by Satan. Our temptations come through the world, the flesh, and the devil. Most of our temptations come through the flesh. The way many of us pray for deliverance from temptation is like the man who prayed about a parking spot to open in front of the donut shop. He said, if it's okay to go off my diet, may that parking spot open up. After, After seven, seven times, times around the, the block, block finally opened up. up. Yeah. Pray for deliverance from the temptations that Satan brings across your path. So ask him to provide your daily needs. Ask him to, to cleanse you from those daily sins. Ask him for deliverance from the temptation of the evil one. The last element of prayer is a benediction. End of verse 13. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And here we, we ascribe to him all that we know belongs to him. And he does, it comes around full circle to the kingdom idea again. Prayer is all about God's kingdom, his rule. We want his will done in our lives. And that, and that belongs, belongs to him. The kingdom, the kingdom does. The power belongs to him. Dunamis, the glory, the doxa belongs ultimately to him. Each of these are to be forever recognized as belonging only to God. The kingdom, the power, the glory. And that is God's divine pattern for prayer. Have you been trying to live your Christian life and neglecting this opportunity to come to the Lord's presence in secret, and pray, and spend time with him. Spurgeon's devotional booklet, Morning and Evening, had an entry just this last Friday, July 15th in the morning. The text that he gave was Leviticus 6.13. He said, The fire shall ever be burning upon the altar, it shall never go out. And then he wrote about the importance of this matter of private prayer. He said, he said, let your closet seasons be, if possible, regular, frequent, and undisturbed. Effectual prayer availeth much. Have you nothing to pray for? Let us suggest the church, the ministry, your own soul, your children, your relations, your neighbors, your country, and the cause of God and truth throughout the world. We have much to pray about. He went, he went on to say, say do we engage, engage with lukewarmness in private devotion? 
Is the fire of devotion burning dimly on our hearts? Do the chariot wheels drag heavily? If so, let us be alarmed at this sign of decay. Let us go with weeping and ask for the spirit of grace and of supplications. Let us set apart special seasons for extraordinary prayer. For if this fire should be smothered beneath the ashes of a worldly conformity, it will dim the fire on the family altar and lessen our influence both in the church and in the world. Will you take this pattern of prayer as your own? Will you take time this week to spend alone with God? Determine now. As you do determine that, remember, Satan is not going to let you go unhindered, unopposed. Samuel Chadwick wrote, The one concern of the devil is to keep the saints from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks at our wisdom, but trembles when we pray. Let's determine with God's help to spend more time in prayer this week. Let's bow for our Father in heaven. We are so thankful for your word. And I pray that today we'll be reminded of this basic element of Christianity, of praying, of talking with you, of listening to you, of spending time discerning what your will is for our lives, of being burdened for those that are around us, those who are lost, those who are wayward. And I pray that in our hearts we would determine to find that quiet place this week and to go there often, not just this week, but maybe a pattern until we see you face to face. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.